Hello, and welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Scott McHugh. Scott is the Global Director of Crisis Management and Security at Lyondell Bissell, a petrochemical multinational headquartered in Houston. He is also a faculty member at Rice University, where he teaches students seeking the Master of Global Affairs degree. Prior to his current position, he was the Vice President for Global Asset Protection at Walmart Stores, Inc. Before joining the private sector, Scott served in the U.S. Foreign Service Department of State Bureau of Diplomatic Security, retiring as Special Agent in Charge. His overseas postings included Rome, Beirut, Khartoum, Moscow, and Algiers. He began his career as a military intelligence officer in the U.S. Coast Guard Reserve. He earned a Master's of Political Management at George Washington University and a Master's of Science and Strategic Intelligence from the National Intelligence University at the Defense Intelligence Agency. Additionally, Scott completed the Graduate Certificate in Business Leadership Program at Cornell University and received his undergraduate degree at the University of Pittsburgh. Scott, welcome to the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence podcast. Well, thank you very much, Fred. It's an honor and a pleasure to be here. Scott, in the spirit of full disclosure, we go back many, many years. I, I think you were my special agent class coordinator back in the day. So uh, it's a true honor to have you on our podcast. Well, thank you. And that, that does seem like a long time ago. I think about those days very fondly and, and wonder in my mind as to whether that was a movie that I was watching or actually I lived that, uh, that adventure. <laughs> yeah, I know. I tell folks all the time, uh, it seems like uh, a long time ago, but at other days, it also seems like it was yesterday. But Scott, uh, you and I had the privilege of being on a um, a recent panel, and you brought up a couple things that were very thought-provoking and uh, which did not surprise me knowing you. But I'm always surprised in our business, even going back to our days in the government and, and also in the private sector, how we're always surprised and how difficult it is to get in front of problems or threats, much like what we're living through now with COVID. What's your thoughts along those lines? No, that's, that's actually a very fair characterization, Fred. And one of the things that is very disturbing is that, unfortunately, decision makers are oftentimes surprised, and they're oftentimes surprised, even though intelligence or risk professionals might very well have forewarned them about a pending issue, they are surprised because they discounted it. And it's not simply people in the private sector that actually has a long history to it, including some very high-level luminaries such as Henry Kissinger or uh, General Douglas MacArthur or many other commanders in the field who didn't believe what they were hearing because they didn't have an ability to understand the context of what they were being told and that impacted their ability to accept the, the forecast. Scott, you sent me a strategic risk forecasting tool, which I thought was a brilliant model. 
Can you explain what that is? So what we've done and what we've actually been doing now for a number of years is that we have taken the indications and warnings analytical methodology, which actually is, a, is a, an intelligence analysis methodology that dates back to the pre-World War II years that was originally developed by the military as a means of being able to avoid surprises as it relates to potential enemies and their military's ability to carry out a warlike environment. And so what we did was that we took that methodology and we adapted it for risk issues that are related to, related to not just government risk and intelligence questions, but also for the private sector. And this has created a mechanism by which we can forecast using that methodology with a reasonable degree of certainty the likelihood of a risk becoming a reality. But more importantly, we're able to provide decision makers with an understanding of what the indicators are from a breakdown of the component parts that make up the indicators of an associated risk intelligence question and the data and the information by which those indicators were activated in the overall indications and warnings methodology. That helps decision makers to then understand how the intelligence process came to the conclusion that it did, and it's more likely to find that the decision maker will embrace the forecast because they fully understand how it was created. And so it's a very useful tool and one that has, in the private sector, uh, during the last 10 years, my experience has been that it's been worth its weight in proverbial gold by being able to forecast emerging and evolving risk, particularly risk overseas relating to geopolitical issues that would have an impact on a commercial industry in one form or fashion. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, and you've worked for a large petrochemical company now, and you've worked for some of the largest companies in the world. So as you look out on the horizon and try to anticipate threats or get in front of problems, one of the things that I always find uh, most interesting as I talk to colleagues in our business is that your Fortune 500 type of chief security officer is looking out globally and trying to evaluate risk. So your model helps make sense of that risk. Is that a simplistic explanation of that? No, that's actually a very good characterization of it. And more importantly, the model is tied to a quantifiable basis to where, for example, if you were asking the question of what was going to be the likelihood of the, of the Chinese government nationalizing an industry for, that was investing in and building itself up within China, you would be able to quantify the probability of that event occurring for your decision makers. And in addition to that, along the risk spectrum, as the risk increases in probability, and conversely, if the risk actually is declining, you can establish triggers by which as the risk escalates or de-escalates that you would carry out certain tasks, certain, certain actions to manage the evolution of that risk, which again gives you a mechanism by which you have a basis to manage that issue in a way that is tied to evolving, quantifiable, and articulable risk emergence. Scott, what are the steps to forecasting business risk using the indications and warnings methodology? So it's a reasonably 
complex problem, which is one of the reasons why many people have a difficult time implementing it. You really have to understand indications and warnings methodology. And the long and the short of it is that you have to first identify what is your intelligence requirement? What is the intelligence question that you're trying to answer for your decision makers? And then once you've got clarity on that question, you can then break the question down into its component parts. And as you and I have talked many times, Fred, there is no such thing as an event that occurs like a light switch on a binary basis to which one thing happens and suddenly you get an assassination or suddenly you get some sort of, a, of an outcome that, that results in war or an impact to your business. It's always a series of events. And so if you look at your intelligence question and break it down into its component parts, and this is where it gets a little bit complicated because some intelligence questions actually could have hundreds of component parts, you then are able to understand the consequences of as those component parts begin to manifest themselves over time, you can start to quantify the likelihood of that intelligence question coming to fruition. And so when you get the component parts established, you then make a determination as to what type of information do you need to be collecting and where do you need to be collecting that information so that you can validate the activation of that indicator and that you want to make sure that that indicator is weighted in accordance with its importance with the overall development of that intelligence question. So it's a reasonably complex process, but once you've established the methodology, it becomes almost a maintenance analytical methodology and that you are collecting information and plugging it into your calculus and making a determination as to when indicators are activated and that impact of that activation on your overall risk probability and the quantification of that risk probability that your decision maker can see it evolving right before their very eyes on the dashboard. And the other real advantage is that if you're smart and do it in a way to where you hyperlink all of the raw data that is behind activated or conversely deactivated indicators, your decision makers can see where that information came from and can understand how you arrived at that conclusion. That's the real value of this methodology, of looking at it in the totality that I just described it. But at the end of the day, being able to provide a meaningful outcome to the decision maker that they actually believe in the outcome and can act upon it. So it becomes a very, very powerful tool for decision making. We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech's Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontech.ai slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. 
Give me some examples as to how it could be used or how you have used that in the past in a, in a generic format. So one thing that I've used it for multiple times is in the world of new market entry from a mergers and acquisition perspective, of looking at new markets from the perspective of what risks are present in those new markets that the company may not have a full understanding or full appreciation of how that risk might manifest itself. The one example that I used earlier is one that I oftentimes use when I'm describing this methodology because it's one that's simple that people understand that if you are a foreign company that is going to invest in an overseas market, what is the probability that the country that you're investing in will view your particular business once it becomes successful as a potential strategic asset and nationalize it? That's happened hundreds, if not thousands of times in the post-World War II modern era. And companies oftentimes find that they're hugely surprised when that type of an event occurs after they've invested billions of dollars and when they are nationalized in places like Venezuela or in places like Russia or Cuba or any number of other nations around the world that have done similar things, it is a huge business loss. So this is a good example of a mechanism to be able to provide that geopolitical analysis in a forecasted way that helps your decision makers to understand how best to manage that risk and make a decision such as, do we even want to enter this market? Or for those businesses that are already in markets that are potentially unstable or uncertain going forward, to be able to monitor the overall risk environment in a way that enables your decision makers to have forewarning of emerging risk issues. And that's why the triggers become so powerful and so important. That if you find that in the example that I gave, that you were going to go down that nationalized, uh, potentially, environment, that you may want to then start employing a more aggressive government relations strategy in that market, or you may want to engage the U.S. government or other partner countries to work with you to ensure the outcome of your business not being nationalized, and any number of other responses that you could have you can do so because you have the advantage of being able to be forewarned in a timely manner in which you know that this risk is emerging and it will potentially affect your business and that you need to take definitive steps to manage that aggressively going forward. So it's a very powerful tool for any type of complicated geopolitical impact to a business outcome. Scott, you're the security officer out in the field now listening to this podcast, and he or she says, wow, I really want to do this. How do I get my management team on board? And who do I talk to inside my company to try to go down this kind of path using this quantifiable method? So the strategy that, that I took, and I'll just give you my, my own experience, was to partner up with the, the, the mergers and acquisitions and the policy and plan and, uh, and strategic planning people within, within your business because they understand this approach. They understand a quantifiable basis to, uh, to this type of an operation. And many of the strategic planning folks do a version of this type of planning as it relates to enterprise risk management. They do bow tie analysis, which is similar, 
but not quite the same, but it's similar enough that they understand the impact of those analytical methodologies. And by partnering with them, you're better able to present a unified effort to your, your leadership as to why this is important and how it, it can be utilized as a strategic tool for managing the uh, evolution of risk as it relates to your business. And it also makes perfect sense uh, if you're a global company trying to uh, look out over the horizon as to what could be coming at you next. Correct. I mean, one of the things that, to be honest with you, is a little bit laughable is that you hear over and over again about how the pandemic was a black swan. Well, I find that to be sort of amazing because many, many companies, when you look at their annual 10Q reports on the state of their business, that they list the pandemic and have listed the pandemic as a risk to their business for years and years and years. And yet many ended up being surprised when the pandemic manifested itself. And the utilization of this type of a methodology for a risk issue that is a potential existential impact to your business just makes sense from the point of view of utilizing the tools that are actually available and that can give you that quantified basis of being proactive and being out in front of this issue so that you're not surprised. And that's really the value of indications and warnings. It's not a crystal ball. It's not a guarantee, but it is the most comprehensive view of risk because of that, as I described earlier, the sitting down and breaking down the risk question into its component parts ensures that you are gathering information about the evolution of that particular risk in a way that you are able to avoid surprises and avoid that black swan event. And so that if you do run across a black swan in the future, it's one that truly was unexpected, not one that's just complicated. Yeah, very well said. Now, I was struck by your comment, the human mind is poorly wired to process inherent uncertainty. Help me understand that. So at the end of the day, we're all human and we all have our own biases. And, and one of the great problems that's associated with the intelligence analysis process is it is very, very difficult to ensure that your own individual biases and your own individual rationalizations aren't integrated into your analytical product. It's really hard to walk the mile in your target's shoes. I know that sounds really simple, but it's very difficult to actually think through the eyes of somebody else, particularly if that somebody else is in a country that's 5,000 miles away, and it's a culture that's different than what you're used to experiencing. The utilization of indications and warnings helps you to minimize that bias and minimize the analyst's ability to see the information through their eyes in a way that they either overvalue the importance of the information or undervalue the importance of the information as it relates to your overall intelligence risk question and thereby come up with a wrong conclusion. So again, the, the indications and warnings methodology, because it is such a disciplined process, gives you the ability to be able to gather that information in a way that minimizes that human bias that affects the outcome of the intelligence product. Do you see an application in the executive protection space with this model? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and then that was frankly where it, this was first applied 20 years ago when I first started using this after I initially retired from the government was in that type of a space to where you had a high net worth individual or a high risk individual and you put together the intelligence question as it related to potentially an assassination of that target or a kidnapping of that target or a home invasion of that target, so on and so forth. Just like on the geopolitical issues, there are component parts that are associated with all of those security issues that become your indicators and that you can start collecting information from various sources to either activate or deactivate those indicators and be able to quantify the evolution of that risk as it relates to your executive protectee. Uh, so yes, it actually has a very important and a very useful means of being able to forewarn the evolution of a, uh, of a targeting of an individual for executive protection purposes. Yeah, that is most interesting. Scott, I know you teach at Rice and you've been a mentor to many people over the years to include me. What advice do you give to folks wanting to get into the corporate security space today? So that's actually a really good question, Fred, and, and one that, that I'm continuously asked by my students at Rice. And I answer them in a way that short of, sort of surprises them, in that for you to be successful in the corporate environment, if you're going to be a chief security officer, if you're going to be a security practitioner at the corporate level, the first thing that you need to be is a business person. You need to put aside all that you learned in the security world or in the intelligence world or the law enforcement world. Those skills are important. Don't think that I'm not saying that they're not critical, but you need to put them aside for a moment and you need to learn how to become a business person. So whether that's going and getting an MBA or, or taking other classes to learn the fundamentals of business so that you then can look at risk through the eyes of a corporate business person and understand what risks matter to businesses and what risks really don't matter to businesses. And then you can apply the skills that you learned when you were working for the government in law enforcement or intelligence or the military in a way that meets a business objective and that you can communicate that risk and what you're doing in the terms and the, the definitions and the mechanisms that business people understand, that you can explain what a return on investment means, that you can explain how the, the impact of what you're presenting is going to have an impact on top line sales or bottom line flow through profitability, because that's how you become successful in the corporate environment is being a business person who is applying the skills, the techniques, the procedures of intelligence, law enforcement, or security to a business risk issue. Well said. Scott, you've served all over the world. Uh, you and I have chatted in the past about your days when you were in Beirut, when we were working on the hostage problems, and you've seen bad things happen to a lot of people. You know, you've been in Rome, Khartoum, Moscow, Algiers, and, and elsewhere. Looking back over your career, is there one job that you like better than than the others? No, not not really. I mean, the, the 22 years that I spent with the government is the pinnacle of my career. It's what I'm the most proud of because I was able to have an impact on some things that were much bigger than I was. 
and that I was just a small, small cog in a much bigger wheel, but it was a wheel that had an impact on not only every American, but also on geopolitical and national security issues associated with the world. So from the point of view of when I look at the two components of my professional life, the 22 years in the government and now the 20 years in the private sector, the 22 years in the government, I am the most proud of. And I feel like I was able to, to have a small impact that made a difference. With that said, the, the, the private sector offers many other types of stimulation and many other types of satisfaction that also you feel very good about, for, but for entirely different reasons. You're, you're part of a, of, a, of a commercial team that is adding value to a corporate objectives and corporate growth strategies, but you don't get that ability to be part of a close-knit team that is doing something much bigger than them like you do when you're with the government and that has a long-term impact on the planet itself. Yeah, that's well said. And I assume, Scott, knowing you, if once folks listen to this and they're interested in your model, you're okay with them reaching out to you to discuss that? No, I'd be, I'd be very happy to, uh, to talk to people and help them understand how they could employ this within their company or within their, uh, their government agency in a way that would bring real value for them and, and help them to be a key advisor and a counselor to their decision makers in the management of geopolitical and security and, in some cases, commercial business risk. Scott, is there anything that I haven't asked you that you would like to say? Just, uh, you know, how, how is it that I've been able to maintain such a, a handsome visage after all these years? But other than that, I, I can't, uh, can't think of anything else. <laughs> well, I thank you uh, personally for everything that you have done for me over the years. Uh, you have been a good friend and a mentor, and I think you underestimate the number of people that you touched for, for many, many years. And for that, I thank you. Well, you, you are very kind, Fred, and uh, I, I thank you very much for, for your, your very heartfelt and kind words. Much appreciated. Thank you for being on the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast, Scott. And thank you very much, and good luck to everyone. This episode was brought to you by the OnTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.